I want to address the, the reality of who Jesus is. We say he rose from the dead, which is an absolute foundational fact. But sometimes in saying he rose from the dead, we, fact, we miss the point he is now risen. And who is he? And that's what I want to overall address. I want to introduce you to the Jesus who is and who is in your house and in your life. And at the same time, I want to pick up where I left off last week. And somewhere you'll see how all that fits together. And so my actual word that we're speaking around is in John chapter 2. And most of us know the story. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and the wine ran out, and she comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. They each contained 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. They filled them to the brim. And then he said to the servants, draw some out now, take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he didn't know where he came from. Only the servants knew they'd drawn the water. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, That's the story, and as I said, everybody sort of knows the story, but I want to look at it head on. It's um, a story that everybody knows and maybe nobody knows, Um, so I'll have to say, um, let me take you to the wedding in Cana. Let's go there and find out exactly what is happening And in that, we would have to climb a few big hills. It was in the hill country. Uh, Cana is up uh, uh, the the Sea of Galilee. Then you go up into the hills. It's about the same as Bandera. It's not much different to Bandera, actually. It's a country town, country people. Um, Wonderful place. I've been there. And if you were with me on that trip, you know all about it. Um, still there, just almost the same exactly as when Jesus went there. The hill country of the Galilee, Cana of the Galilee. It was the beginning. No one at this point knew Jesus. He had been to the wilderness, having been baptized by John. He had met Satan and the temptations and the overcoming. Now he returns and on his way back, He is collecting disciples. There's six of them now who are following him. 
and he's on his way back home up into the further hills of the Galilee to the north. But it's a marriage, and it's a marriage in Cana that it would appear that Mary, the mother of Jesus, they were relatives. Um, I say that because there were no professional wedding planners, but Mary seems to be the wedding planner for this wedding. It would highly suggest she was a relative, which would make Jesus a relative too. And here they are. Um, She had authority. If you remember what I just read, she, she just goes into the kitchen and says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And they immediately comply, which suggests she had authority. She was in charge of the catering and therefore in charge of the bar, the wine. And so there it is. Of course, really in a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom was responsible for the wine. The bridegroom made sure there was enough wine for the whole feast. And so when they ran out, the bridegroom was the one who knew they'd run out. And he then told Mary, because she, as I say, seems to be, that's her department. A wedding, a Jewish wedding, lasted seven days. It was no flash in the pan. It was seven days, um, and throughout that whole seven days, there would be endless visiting from endless relatives from all over the countryside, and there would be endless parties, not necessarily one long party, but endless parties within the visiting, and there would be much dancing. Um, the word rejoice, which is a Hebrew word used to describe such times, Rejoice means to leap in the air, spin around as you leap, and um, come down dancing. Um, and they they did it. Uh, to, they would be more like do they call it the conga here, where everybody's holding everybody and going around in circles and holding hands and jumping together. And it's a very community dancing that goes on for seven days. Seven days of rejoicing, seven days of party, seven days of visiting. Um, And and of course, for that whole week in the village, the bride and the groom are named the king and queen of the village. And into that, Jesus had been invited, suggesting he was a relative too. Um, And it's his first miracle As I say it again, no one knew Jesus up until this point. It's his first miracle, and he chooses, this is where he's going to have his, what do you you call it, he's going to be introduced to the world. And, And I want you to get this. Don't look at me religious. Jesus, God incarnate, is going to come on stage He's going to be introduced. And this is how he does it. I don't know, it blows my mind that when God is incarnate and has come to show us exactly who God is and at the same time show us who we are, he chose a six-day party, a wedding party. 
in which there was dancing, in which they drank the wine, in which it was one long week of camaraderie. I mean, and God, the real God, not this stinking religious God, the real God is perfectly at home, perfectly at home in a six-day party. I don't know, you're still looking at me like that, but it amazes me. Uh, He doesn't refuse to go, because I know many believers, God bless them, but if they were invited to such a party, they wouldn't go, and they would make a fuss of it and say that it was too worldly, there's too much dancing, too much joking, too much, too much. And, um, but when he comes, he comes and says, this is it. Did you understand me? God incarnate is saying the holy we are at home here. This, this party, this dancing in circles of rejoicing and this laughing and sitting together and telling jokes on each other. He said that reflects the Holy Trinity. Dear Lord, this upsets all the theology that's ever been taught. How come God is here in the first place? But no, he's not only here, this is part of his revealing his glory. He says that. Hmm, yeah. He's not awkward. I I know many, many Christians who'd be very awkward in a thing like this. They they stand out like sore thumbs. Um uh, they're trying to, to tell people, I belong to another world. This is not where I'm at home. I don't feel right here. Well, get a life. When God became flesh, he was perfectly at home here. How can I believe? He's not standing aloof, you know, holier than thou. I mean, if if there'd been any Pharisees there, they would have. Um, the religion of the day would not participate in this, that they would be very much aloof and they would portray a face of sneering and disapproval and I'm holier than thou. But Jesus doesn't. And I don't think he's ever dawned on 21st century America what that means. We read these things and I don't know what you think. Do you think Jesus went there and had a Bible study and a prayer meeting? Um, He went to a wedding, and it was a Jewish wedding, and that's what they did. And Jesus joined in and was perfectly at home there. In fact, became the one who kept the feasting going because they'd run out of wine, and if that was it, then the party's over. And Jesus made sure the party continued. And, of course, this was only a foretaste of later on when he would sit down and eat and party with tax collectors who were the scum of the earth, the mafia boys of the day, and Jesus felt perfectly at home. Boy, is this place silent. It's, go there, come on, go to the wedding. I mean, sit there and and see the eating. I mean, six days of eating, yeah, Um, and the drinking, and all the wineskins had all been emptied um, by this time. The laughter, sitting around in the circles of 
camaraderie and and the jokes they tell on the bride and the groom and the backslapping and the laughter and I'll outdo you on this story. Have you ever realized that reflects who God is much more than sitting in rows in a church looking like robots? I'm serious. Where, where, where did, did I mention this last week? That, that as I've been around the world into many different countries, I find the one thing that is common to all their customs and all their different cultures, there's all, you'll find a place somewhere in that where everybody sits around and laughs and they tell stories and, and they celebrate just being alive and you're my friend. Where did they get it from? You never see chimpanzees do that. You don't, you don't see cows do that. What's different about us in whichever culture you go, we are made in the image of God. And again, religion has made that to be that you're so solemn and otherworldly. Image of God means sitting around, loving each other, laughing with each other. Okay. That's what they were doing. And of course, in the middle of all that, the dancing. And as I said, the Hebrew dance of spinning and and dancing in great big circles. It was there. But because it was who they were, because of their history, there was a great sense of covenant, which is something forgotten in our Western wedding services. But, but it's the same. We've taken what they did into our wedding. But it, it's a time of covenant, that they're entwining two lives into covenant with God and his promises. And in all of that, as you're sitting there, you would discover Jesus coming over to you, grabbing your hand and saying, let's dance. And he would be the one whirling around the room and carrying you with him. That's Jesus, if you've never noticed. This is not the kind of party that is just a numb emptiness. This is a party in celebrating who I am and who God is as one with us in this life. It's God with us in the most detail of life, delighting with us, laughing with us, uniting with our humanity. That is what the incarnation means. And I have to say it, and then I'll be done with it, but um, religion does not understand that. And if you have been among the religious, or God forbid you are such religious, you would find yourself solemn. There's something terribly religious and pious about solemn. God forbid you crack a smile. I mean, this is heavy business, so you've got to be unsmiling. You've got to be serious. We're talking about God. And, and, and that's religion. That is religion. And it's religion as everybody thinks of it. it it's, it's serious because you're burdened with this dark cloud. And it's a dark cloud of disapproval because the person religion believes is God disapproves of us. And so when you are shamed, what do we do? We pass it on and shame somebody else. And so religion is based in the shame, God's disapproval, and what do we have to do if we're religious is pass it on and make everybody else feel ashamed. 
and disapprove of them. Religion sees God as dealing with big stuff. You know, if you're going to be religious, then you deal with eternal salvation, which to the religious involves heaven and hell. And that's about it. That all happens when you die. And so you don't talk much about now. And of course, at the center of religion is the day of judgment. When you're going to be judged for all that you've done and not done. And all of that is what we think about. John Wesley, and I like John Wesley. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. He's a great guy, great guy. But he actually, he had a school of children and he would beat the children who laughed because he said, you're not serious enough. You're not thinking about death and hell. That's in his writings. And so, yeah, you're looking at me now. Now I'm getting a response. Yeah, that, but that's religion. Religion is removed. It, it, it's a, annoyed with disgusting human activity, like a wedding, like, like, like a birthday party, like graduation. Oh, that, 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 get, get rid of that. Get rid of that. No, we've got to think about serious things, serious things. And so it's totally disconnected from the daily grind of work. It means, indeed, you think about it for an hour on Sunday and wipe the cold sweat off your brow when you get out. It's it's done because it's totally disconnected. There's nothing to do on Sunday morning with Monday morning. That's another world. That's another religion has its as its it's disconnected. So therefore, you'll never find religion getting excited about what's happening in your life. God of religion never cares about what happens in your school. Never cares about your wins in football and baseball and cheerlead. It doesn't, it doesn't bother. Her. What's religion got to do with that? You're going to hell anyway. I mean, it is. Who cares? That's religion. But the real God who came to us in Jesus goes to a party for six days and dances and sings and tells jokes and slaps people on the back. That's God? Yes, that's God. He said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. He is absolutely tied in with the little joys that make up our life, that we've been taught are of no concern to God. But this real, that's why I want to talk, and it's his first miracle, first one. As if to say, well, I'm here, now let's get it straight. This is, this is I'm setting the scene here. I'm arranging the furniture on the stage. This, this is the way this is going to be. Huh. And it's a window, I say it again, into the, incarnation you might have heard that word incarnation it means god actually became human without ceasing to be god so that we would see what god was like in a human being and here he is totally immersed in our little lives and i say that i mean this couple do you know their name no nor do i nobody ever did 
I mean, the book was written 2,000 years ago and nobody's ever found out who that couple was. Just a couple of, you know, ranchers in Bandera. I, I don't know who they were. They just went to Bandera High School and then they got married. I, I don't know who they were. Do, do you see this? You couldn't get more mundane, more ordinary. In the eyes of some people, you couldn't be more not important. It's just what it is. And he not only is there, but he exalted it. So people have been talking about this for 2,000 years. Can you imagine? And they don't even know who the couple were. But Jesus exalted it. In, into, I mean, just an ordinary day becomes one of infinite importance and revealing to us what God is like and our union with him. Let me say it, and I'll leave this, but do you, do you realize the day of your birth was not only recorded in heaven, I've heard that said, and that is so dull. You know, some angel with glasses on the end of its nose writing down no the the scripture says that he was there at your birth to catch you in his arms he he was committing himself to you at your birth that from the moment of your conception is that he was working in the womb loving every little vein of your body coming into being do you realize <laughs> dare i say it he celebrated your first tooth. Dare I say that he celebrated your first step? If not, I don't know who you worship. He must be a terribly boring creature, if he's a creature at all. He celebrates your first day at school. He knows your tears that you cried. He knows the awkwardness of sitting in a desk you'd never sat in before. You ever thought about he celebrates all your birthdays? Have you ever thought that he celebrates you as you're in sports and your team wins the game? Who, who's dancing with you in the clubhouse? According to this, Jesus is. <laughs> he celebrates your graduation. Wow, you made it. You made it. He comes on vacation with us, sits on the sand, you know, wows at his own creation that you've just discovered. And of course he goes nuts at marriages. <laughs> it, it, that's what it means that God became human. He didn't become a pretend human he became one of us. And inside our one of us showed to us, yeah, that's how I made you. Well, I mean, I heard one preacher say that all this fuss that we make and uh, like the things I've just mentioned, well, that's all of the devil. That came in with the fall. No. You celebrate those things because you're made in the image of God. You celebrate school graduations. You celebrate getting a new job. Because you're made in the image of God and God is one with you and he's delighting along with you. That's the way it is. Okay. Yeah, I'll get that out of the way. 
There was a wedding in Cana. Mary's in charge of the thing. And she comes to Jesus and she's having a panic attack. She's anxious. They've run out of wine. Run out of wine. And the suggestion is it's very early in that week. Now, to the Jewish people and the Old Testament, wine was very significant. It says, God created wine. This is in the Psalms. It says, God created wine to make glad the heart of man. And they link that to rejoicing. And it says that when you go to worship God in Jerusalem, you are to set aside your money to buy wine so that you may rejoice before the Lord your God. I know that shocks a lot of people. I'm just quoting scripture. But um, she comes to him. They've run out of wine. They've run out of wine at a wedding. Now that's a whole different matter, especially if you lived in Cana. Remember, it's up in the hills. And in those days, what's up in the hills doesn't connect with what's down in the valley. They've got a lot of weird superstitions up in the hills. And they believe that if you run out of wine at your wedding, then there's something gone wrong with the marriage. It's sort of cursed. It's It was just a sign from who knows where that your marriage is not going to make it. You say, that's daft. Yes, it is. But they they believe that. And it's interesting how the compassion of Jesus doesn't argue with that. He doesn't have to say, well, you're being stupid. You just ran out of wine. No. He knows this couple are beside themselves. They've run out of wine. They'd be shamed in front of the whole village. And they would believe as the superstitious people up in the hills that their marriage is cursed. He doesn't argue with them. His compassion reaches to where we are. His compassion reaches to what we believe. And sometimes it's nuts. But he comes where we are and loves us. Because that's God. See, none of the guests knew that this was the last glass of wine that they held in their hand. Nobody knew that. Only the groom, I doubt he told his new wife, only the groom knew, been reported by one of the waiters, this is it, we run out. Huh. He immediately tells Mary. Mary flips out. What are we going to do? She's responsible for the catering. She's supposed to produce wine. What are we going to do? The master of ceremonies, the head waiter, assumed they've just gone to fetch another wineskin. He doesn't know. And so she comes to Jesus, which would suggest that although we know nothing about it, he always in the household had been a center of wisdom and the voice of God. And she spills it. They've got no wine. Jesus' response is, basically, who cares? What's that to do with us? That's a strange response. He starts out by saying, woman, that wouldn't be a good idea here in the West. Um, but, but if you're at a Jewish wedding, that, that's the highest word of respect, woman. Um, 
I mean, he's calling his mother Mary woman. That gives a clue. Um, but actually, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created man. And when man looked at himself, he called himself Ish. And he looked at all the animals to try and find another Ish. Another one who corresponds to me. Another one made in the image of God. Another one who is not an animal creature. Nor has ever been an animal creature. One unique and Ish. And then you remember God brings to him Eve. And when he wakes up out of the divine given anesthetic, he, he sees and one one look, he looked and he says, Ish, another one exactly like me, an equal. But then he notices her difference and says, Ah. And so Ish is the male and Isha is the woman. Woman, one made in the image of God, one exalted to be face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder with man-ish, to together be the purpose of God on earth. Woman, they're saying something. That's honor. That's not a put-down. That's not saying you're less than me. It's honor. Eye-to-eye, face-to-face. Respect, Isha. So, That's how he addressed her. But then he said, what is that to us? Now, what does he mean by that? Well, you've got to get this. Mary is in a panic. She's full of anxiety. Jesus essentially was saying, dear lady, my precious lady, we're not on the same page. You are in a panic. I'm not in a panic. That if the if the leaders of this party want to be in a panic, let them be in a panic. What's that to me? Um, but I do not respond to panic. That's that's the biggest thing in this story. Jesus said, "I don't respond to anxiety. Don't don't come to me with your head blown apart, saying you got to do something. You got to do something. Oh God, help us! No, that's not." I know how you feel, and many times he does sit down and calm you down before you can really talk straight, but he he doesn't, he's not, his actions are not initiated by panic. We We don't get God moving in our life with anxiety, not at all. Um, he, he's never forced into action because we've got a problem. Can you get that? He's not the divine Mr. Fix-It. He's not the magician giving out six wishes, you know. He said, if there's panic, I don't respond to the panic. Then what do you respond to? He says, my hour has not yet come. That is, Father hasn't talked to me about this yet. It's one of the most simple and amazing things in the Gospels. How did Jesus know what to say? Because he became one of us to show us how life is supposed to work. He became one of us. 
He said, I don't do anything unless I see my father do it, see God do it. I don't do anything unless I hear him say it. And I don't believe that that means that he had visions of something happening. It was simply in the moment. His attitude was, what are you doing, Father? What are we doing? What are we doing? And to then immediately act on the answer to that. And if if you're wondering, there is an answer to that. You you ask that question and he has an answer. Quiet, doesn't talk with flashes of lightning and loud booming voice. Doesn't sound like Moses in the Ten Commandments. He, it's a quiet voice, just still voice. And you say, well, is it me or is it God? Well, if God lives in you, who, who do you think it is? Um, he comes and, and he speaks deep within us. And I say, it's not an odd voice. You mistake it for your own voice. But what are you, what are you doing? What, what, do you, what, what do you want? And so his mother comes and she's anxious and she's portraying and bringing into the, the area uh, all the concerns and all the anxiety and all the shame and all the terrible things of the people of the feast. And Jesus said that that's nothing to do with us. We operate not from the pressure of the people. We operate from what is Father doing? What does Father want me to do? And almost immediately, she gets it. She gets it. She understands. And she leaves it in his hands, confident that Father will say what to do. But right now, He's saying, I'm not responding to your panic. Okay, then I quit the panic. I just go and tell the waiters. And she goes to the servants. And I love, she told the servants he's in charge of the kitchen. And, and then she, whatever he says to you, do it. You ever what, ponder that word, whatever. Why did she say that? Whatever. Whatever. He says to you, do it. I mean, very quickly, the suggestion is he's going to say something that you, is going to unnerve you. You know, if he, if he said, put on the coffee, well, that, okay, no problem. But when she says, whatever, that's outside of coffee and tea making. Um, that's outside of scrambled eggs, you know. Um, whatever, whatever, he says. Be ready for anything. It's very unnerving. In fact, the whole jolly thing is unnerving to me because he says, my hour is not yet come. I say, my hour has come. Come on. <laughs> I'm in no status of wait, waiting around for you, whatever you do. But that's, you know, Keisha saying, you know, that he said it, we rest, Whatever. Uh, and sometimes the path ahead is a strange whatever. Couldn't have been stranger than this. Whatever. Expect the unexpected. Whatever he says. <laughs> Expect the unusual. She'd already been through something like this back at the home. You can see that. Now, have you ever thought what he might have done? Seriously. 
Much of understanding the scripture is to ask the question, what could have happened, might have happened, and maybe in our head should have happened. It doesn't. Why didn't Jesus stop the feast? I mean, as Pharisee would, Pharisee would have told the people, you're disgusting. You have drunk every wineskin dry. It's only halfway through the week. Stop this, go home. You should be ashamed of yourselves. That sounds like a good, well, I won't say which denomination, but it sounds like something we've heard. Or he could have announced, there's no wine. Yikes. That a cloud would descend, a shame, the people embarrassed. And, and then he could have called them to prayer and repentance. Cast the demons out that cause this. And get serious with God. I mean, that's what they do today. I've heard that. I've heard that. Oh, I didn't make that up last night. I've heard that in the last six months. What do we do? We repent. You know, somebody's fault, like the witch doctors in Africa. Somebody's going to repent. Somebody's to blame. Jesus didn't do it. That's shocking. You've got to be shocked at the unusualness of Jesus and how absolutely irreligious he is. Oh, of course, he could have been a charismatic. Go in and gather, stop, every, stop everything, gather round, gather round. I am about to perform a miracle. I am a miracle worker. Everyone take notes. I want it for my magazine article. Come on. What? Yeah, there was no camera, but um, I'm not joking here. The, the shockingness of Jesus. The entire event was kept secret. The only people who knew what was happening were the servants. And it all happened back there in the kitchen. The only one who even saw what was happening were the servants. And, and everybody out there, the music continues to play, the chatter, the laughter, the speeches to the couple, kids are playing outside in the courtyard, and nobody knows that's the last glass of wine that they hold in their hand. Everything's just going on as if nothing's happening. And out there in the kitchen, it's happening. In the kitchen. Hmm. We, we always refer to this as Jesus turning water into wine. And he did. He did. But that's really not the whole truth because he refused to do it alone. And again, this is mind-boggling if you think about it. Because we've got this image in our head. Jesus turned water into wine. He called the servants. Again, what was their name? I mean, we should know the name. 
They were the ones that went and got the water. They were the ones that carried it. I, I don't know their name. Don't know. Everything's anonymous here. Only emphasizing the ordinariness of this. He goes to the servants. He refuses to do anything back there in the kitchen without the servants participating. The servants were part of this miracle. He said, I need these great big pots to be filled with water. Well, the servants, there was 180 gallons of water. If you work it out, it says it there. 180 gallons of water. He did. Jesus just stood there. If you can turn water into wine, you could have filled those pots with water with a snap of your finger. They didn't. Calls upon unnamed servants, go get the water. Oh, just a minute, it wasn't water. Did you notice that? It was the pots that were used for ceremonial washing. Today, I think, do they call it gray water? It's, you can't drink it. It's not, what are they called, portable? Um, It's water, but it's used just for washing. And that only just for washing in religious What does that mean? Jesus says, fill the pots with water that you can't drink. So we're starting out with dishwater sort of thing. But the servants knew where to find that, and they went and they filled the pots with washing water for ceremonial purposes. And then Jesus told the servants, go and get a ladle and and pull some out. And you, servants, you take it to the head waiter. Uh Uh-huh. Are you nuts? (laughs) I just put undrinkable water in that pot. And now you are telling me to go and take a glass of that to the head waiter. Do it yourself. You said it, you do it. Instead, he said, we do this together. Of course, without what he was doing, they would have taken dirty dish water to the MC. But, but it's a foundational fact God refuses to do anything without us. He likes you and more than likes you has determined from before creation that he would not do anything without you. And it's in the kitchen. (laughs) Whenever we give thanks to God for our meal... If you're around me when we do it, I always, yeah, I thank God for the abundance of the food. But then I thank God for putting his wisdom and creativity in the person who created it. It's, we Christians say the stupidest things. You know, thank God for the food. Well, I'm a good example. Nothing much happened in my kitchen till Cheryl turned up. 
and to say I thank God for the food. Well, he he, he didn't cook a jolly thing. Why, why thanking God for the food? He provided it, yes. He made it grow. But then what about the farmers who made it grow? Nothing was growing till Farmer Jones turned up. Do you follow me? And I'm not I'm not saying we shouldn't thank God because he's behind it all. But have you noticed, he never makes the food grow without a farmer. He never brings it to your town without truckers. He never gets it on your table without salespeople. And nothing happens to the food if you buy it like I bought it. And it ends up in the freezer as a jolly good idea for a future day. I don't know what. And I'm being serious. We, we say, thank you, God. Thank you all. Thank you. Yes, thank you. But you didn't do anything until the farmer showed up, until the trucker showed up, and until your wife showed up. And then something begins to happen. Thank you, Jesus, you turned water into wine. Well, without the servants, you wouldn't have done it. Because they did, as I said, they did a lot. And they were the ones who had to pour the stuff and take it to the, I don't know. I'd like to have been in the head of those servants. (laughs) Last time I saw this, it looked very different. I... I (laughs) real human beings and it happens specifically in the kitchen it happens specifically in one of those emergencies that take place when somebody forgot to do something that has messed up the entire party somebody has made a gigantic mistake And the party's ruined. And that's where this takes place. Interesting. You know, it doesn't take place in church. Of course, come to think of it, there are no churches in the Bible. But um, we always think that all this stuff, God's stuff, has got to happen inside a church. But no, it happens in the kitchen. It happened with happened to be his own mother but the master the the wedding planner you know happened when you could still hear the dancing and the music and the it's interesting he said fill the water pots with water to the very top fill them to the top why did he say that well if he had just used wineskins, which you would expect, that's where they, they didn't have glass, they had skins, animal skins, that they put the wine in. Well, if he'd have used that, someone could have said, well, really, that was half full of wine, you know, and the water just mixed with the wine, and it looked like it. He said, no, let's go to pots. Never, never put wine in pots, but they all did it in wineskins. But no, this time, put it in pots and fill it to the top. So if it is, there was nothing there at the bottom, nothing there at the bottom, and, and um, to, to the top, if you do half full, they get the idea. I might have slid half a bottle in there, but no, to the top, six water pots, 
180 gallons. Now, come on. 180 gallons of wine. Yeah. That's God. He is not tight-fisted ever. Have you noticed anything God does, it's too much. Really. He fed the 5,000. Well, that was 15,000 really because they 5,000 men had women and children. About 15,000 people. But then it says afterward, they collected 12 large baskets full of what was left over. Which means he didn't only feed them, but he stuffed them. And they said, I can't eat another thing. That's God. He's, he's, not, he's not on a budget. It's the abundance of God, 180 God. I mean, okay, they, they, they've got to provide for the entire village and all the visiting relatives. But even so, even so, they're still going to have plenty left over. That's grace. That's how God is in everything he does in our lives. It's always... <sighs> okay, the only person who knew that they'd run out of wine was the bridegroom and Mary. That's the way it would be. The servants come out with this wine to the head waiter, the MC. And he tastes it. And you, you know what he said. You know, you, you've done it backwards. He said, normally they serve the best wine at the beginning and then when people have had plenty, then you bring out the $4 bottles. You know, it's... But you, he says, what's the matter with you? He says, you have kept the best wine to last. If you're a wine connoisseur, there's never been a better wine than in Cana, A.D. 30. A.D. 30 was a great year. <laughs> Produced wine like no one had ever tasted. But then the head waiter, see, the head waiter, having tasted the wine, that's the way they do it, he goes to the couple, the bridegroom, who knows it's... And he said to the bridegroom, you kept the... Uh, you really had us on a string. You you kept the best wine till last. The poor guy, what's he talking about? You know, we've run out of wine. I know that. What's he talking And he's saying, yes, yes, yes. But really, he doesn't know what's happening. Nobody knew what was happening. Everybody drank wine like they'd never tasted before. That's interesting. It means... They, this couple, well, just take the bridegroom. He didn't beg and plead of Jesus. You've got to help us. You've got to do it. He didn't know a thing. So he didn't agonize in faith. There's no agony here. There's no sweat. There's no tears. There's no crying to God. There's no, I promise you, I'll be a better man if you do this. It's, he didn't know a thing about it. 180 gallons of the best wine. Do you know how much that would cost? He got it for free. The man is standing there totally confused. 
And Jesus is in the kitchen with a smile on his face as big as the cosmos, delighting in the happy confusion of all the people. He still doesn't tell them what he did. Never appeared in his magazine. This didn't show up in print until nearly a hundred years later. That's Jesus. And it says in that it revealed his glory. What's glory? It's an old-fashioned word. It, It means that in this he declared who God was. He revealed this is the real God. And this is what I'm into. He doesn't, there's no lecture on God. Rather, it was love doing God in the kitchen. And that's where the glory of God was seen. And so, in the kitchen, at a time of tremendous crisis, kitchen anxiety, in the ordinariness of our lives, that's where we discover who God is. If you go to Bible school, you probably lose any image of what God is like. But if you're in the kitchen and you know what this is talking about, you'll discover who he is. The word glory in in its original languages, the prime meaning is to have an opinion. And so the glory of God is his opinion of you. Did you get that? The glory of God is his opinion of you. And I trust just in the last 45 minutes you've caught that. His opinion of you is shown in the, his opinion of what they were doing here and of this unknown anonymous couple. His opinion. They were worth the attention and the action of God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So, the, And really, bottom line, if you're that couple, you'd come to a lot of conclusions later on. But on the day, all he did was save their marriage from shame. Uh, that, that's what it was. That, that's God. God is good. God is kind. And the word kind, do you know what the word kind is? It means useful love. It's love being useful. Don't sit there and tell me, you know, I love you. Do something when I'm in pain. Do something when I've got a problem. Useful. Be useful. That's what it is. So you look at this story and you see his opinion of you. And as I say, all the, for no good reason. Don't come to God saying, well, he's a good boy. He's tried his best. That's of no interest. God's grace is poured out upon people who are bad boys and have never tried to do a thing in their life. That's God, his grace. He doesn't reward anything. He just gives out of the fullness of his heart. So the miracle was just to bring an anonymous couple in the hill country some joy and happiness. 
while at the same time revealing who God is from before. And of course, after they got over the confusion and discovered what really happened, then why would he do that for us? We're nobodies. We're insignificant peasants. Why would he do that? Well, yeah, that's the point. You'll be saying that forever. I've got no answer to that. God, in a real human situation, real, so real, real situation, providing in a real emergency for something that had gone wrong, but we never know who was to blame because God's not into blaming either. He's showing that God is not disconnected from earth, but in him, joined to us, heaven and earth are married. In a sense, you're seeing another marriage going on here. Heaven, with all its provision and love, is married to earth in all its problems. I, I hope you can get that, that in the middle of the ordinariness of life, when you've made mistakes, you've left things undone, and now all hell breaks loose. And God just says, I love you, and I'm kind, and I'm gentle, and I'm with you. It's okay. Don't bring your anxiety. Just rest. I've got it. I've got it. And he does it all without any effort. No effort. No sweat. On, on anybody's part. The only one to have a little bit of sweat was Mary at the beginning, and she soon lost that. You know, when he healed people, he had to lay hands on them. But he didn't lay hands on The servants did all of that. They, they took the water. They carried the water. Jesus didn't do it. If it was demonic, he had to cast out the demon. But he doesn't even say a way. He doesn't say, water, be wine. No. Just put the water in the jug. Take the wine out. It's, when did it happen? No word of command in the kitchen. Simply do it. Just, ha. Huh. And he's doing it. See, if you believe that God doesn't want to help you, then I suppose you'd better scream a bit louder and it's the one who screams the loudest that gets the attention. But that has absolutely zero to do with the God revealed in the face of Jesus. He simply brings the love of God, the kindness of God to that wedding in the hill country in there is, in there now. There was no suggestion that you've got to be better, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Simply is now done. How many acts of God's love and kindness in your life have gone completely unnoticed? You might have thought at the time, this is a bit odd, but you never pursued it. And I'm very serious. How many times has there been a quiet, unsung, unphotographed, unwritten up miracle in your kitchen 
And you just said, what a coincidence. How many times has God done this? And you know nothing about it. And sometimes you put two and two together, and if you've got some holy common sense, you'll realize, yes, you'll know afterward. But I know people who get very upset because I didn't pray. I didn't have faith. I didn't beg. I didn't plead. I didn't repent. I didn't. No, he just did it. That's shocking, but that's God. He loves you. Rest in his love and realize what he's doing is just for you. Or as we left off last week, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Learn to be in sync with Jesus. What's Father doing right now? Let me do it with him. What's Father saying right now? Let me say it with him. And sometimes he's not doing anything or not saying anything because there's nothing to say, only in our anxiety. And then you become a center. You become Jesus because he lives in you. And you walk into the kitchen lives of your neighbors and you are a center of peace and you're a center of joy and a center of hope and you bring the faith of God. It's the way it is. Well, we could say a lot more because that's only the surface of the, the story, just what the story was. Maybe we'll revisit it. But I've landed the plane. So it's time to go out to the kitchen and to recognize the presence of Jesus. It's not only in you, but he's in your kitchen. And that makes all the difference. And Father, for that we do thank you. We do thank you for how every person in our lives and every one of us carry some facet of your grace that we hardly know about, wherein we serve others and bring what you're doing to pass in their lives. We thank you for your abundance. We thank you for 180 gallons, not just a glass or two, because you're always plenty too much. Always. And so we commend our lives to you that you shall be revealed in us and through us as well as for us. And your abundance shall be tasted by a multitude who never knew where it came from. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.